We are going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 this morning, and uh, we're going to be talking about the subject of pleasure. So let me just uh, state a quick word before we begin, and that is some of the discussion this morning will be mature in its content, not graphic, but we will, as we talk about pleasure, be talking a bit about pleasure addictions, sexuality, substance addictions, those types of things. So if you have small children who you feel are not quite prepared for that type of discussion, feel free to take them to the kids' ministry. It's not too late to go there. Uh, On the other hand, uh, many of you will find that your kids are mature enough to handle the discussion, but just wanted to issue that word of warning. It's not going to be graphic or detailed, but it will be mature this morning. As we talk about the subject of pleasure, and as I thought about it this week, I thought when we think about pleasure in our lives, whether it is food or sex or spending money or surrounding ourselves with beautiful things, whatever the pleasure in our life is, there's sort of a pattern that pleasure takes. There are, if you, the way you might say it is there are stages of pleasure from the time that we spot a pleasure until the time we participate in it until we are finished participating in that pleasure. So I thought I would uh, share those five stages with you. And by way of illustration, I'm going to use some photos from my middle daughter's second birthday party. This is actually a number of years ago, but I ran across these this week. First stage is anticipation, right? You see the uh, pleasure, whatever it is, the cake or whatever, and you say, I like that. I want to be a part of that. Uh, There's a big smile on your face, perhaps, at the beginning. Uh, Then there is preparation. You've moved beyond just thinking about the cake to reaching for the fork. Now you are uh, taking active steps, perhaps, to either plan or move forward into that pleasure. The third stage is what we call participation uh, with trepidation, right? You see that on her face. She's going to take a bite. Will this be as good as I hoped that it would be as it looked when I saw it. Uh, She takes that bite, and that leads to the next stage, which we would call dissipation or uh, immoderation, meaning she's abandoned the fork, and she just shoves her fingers into her mouth, right? We are going all out with this pleasure at this point because it tastes so good, and all sorts of reward chemicals are being triggered in your brain at this moment to say, I cannot get enough. Uh, And then... After the pleasure is over, often there's this stage called desolation, right? The plate is empty, the hands are messy, the face is dirty, there's nothing left. You have a dejected face and you think, I can't wait until the next time that I get to engage in that pleasure, right? Uh, That is, I share that not just for a laugh, but also to say that is a relatively predictable pathway for how pleasure works in our life. And it doesn't really matter what the pleasure is, uh, we follow that same type of path where we get excited about a pleasure and our brain is wired to tell us to chase and seek after that pleasure. In fact, God has designed us that way. We'll talk about that more as we move through Ecclesiastes 2 this morning. And so we engage in that pleasure, and that pleasure could either be legitimate or illicit, but we engage in that pleasure, we enjoy it in the moment, and then there is always a moment following that pleasure where it is over and it is nothing but a memory, and there may be a variety of things that we feel from disappointment, that it wasn't as good as it looked when we began, all the way to guilt if it was an inappropriate or sinful or illicit 
pleasure, or it may be simply anticipation of the next buzz. But pleasure runs these predictable courses in our life. And as we look at the scripture, what we're going to see is that uh, God, in a sense, has wired us, in fact, to desire good things, to desire pleasure. So God is the one that created pleasure. It's a good gift. God made food. God made sugar. God made sex. God made things that are beautiful. God has designed us to seek pleasure for a variety of reasons. One of those reasons is that as we observe and participate in the beauty and the joy and the pleasure of a world that God has made, that ideally points us back to God himself. Ideally, we see that the character of God is that of a good giver, somebody who loves to give good gifts. But the flip side of that is when we turn pleasure around into a God, when we, instead of looking at pleasure as a way to point us toward God, when we look at pleasure instead as a God in itself, and we say, you know what, I'm going to chase pleasure for pleasure's sake, what we find is that it invariably disappoints us. It leads us to uh, the words that Solomon will say, remember, all the way through Ecclesiastes, that at a fundamental level, pleasure, apart from being directed toward God's purposes, is vanity. Vanity, all vanity, because in and of itself, chasing happiness and pleasure will always leave us disappointed. That poses some tension for us in a culture that believes that chasing happiness is the highest end of mankind. In other words, our world would say the best thing you can do is make yourself happy every day with whatever pleasures are in front of you. Uh, When I was in college ministry and leading the college group, if I gave a sermon in which I suggested that maybe being happy was not, in fact, the highest goal of human existence... I would get more pushback on that concept than any concept I ever presented because it is so deeply ingrained in us that the purpose of our lives is to chase happiness. And what we're going to see as we look at Ecclesiastes is that while God has designed us to experience pleasure, it's not intended to be an end in itself, but instead it's intended to be an experience that points us back to him so that pleasure ought to be a byproduct of pursuing God. And in fact, often the happiest moments of our life come when we are not chasing the happiness, but we are chasing God and we get happiness as a byproduct. But it seems that the more we chase pleasure, the more we chase happiness, we are designed to be frustrated by it because it never satisfies as much as we would hope that it will. If you remember, as we've walked through Ecclesiastes, each week we keep coming back to this fundamental premise, which is this. Nothing on earth can satisfy our need for lasting significance. So last week we talked about wisdom and knowledge and how in and of itself it will not satisfy that need we have for lasting significance. This week we will look at pleasure and we'll see how Solomon experimented with pleasure and he found that in and of itself pleasure will not satisfy the desire of our heart for lasting significance and connection with God and a life that lasts forever. 
And so what Solomon finds is this, pleasure is a good gift, but it's a disappointing deity. Pleasure is a good gift, but a very disappointing deity when we turn it into something we worship. So we're going to look at Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11, and I want to read that passage as we begin to set the stage. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely, and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines." Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Solomon finds in the final analysis that pleasure apart from a connection to God is vanity. Now here's what we ought to realize as we dive into Ecclesiastes 2. In today's world, every single one of us can repeat the experiment of Solomon. And we often do day in and day out. Because we live in a world, if you want to find illicit sex, you can find it in spades. If you want to find enough sugary treats to kill you, you can find them in spades. If you want to fill your days with laughter and entertainment to numb the pain of your life, you can do it. If you want to buy things to surround yourself with more beauty than Solomon ever saw, you can do it even on a modest salary. We live in a world where we repeat the experiment of Solomon day in and day out. And often what we find is just like Solomon, pleasure is a good gift, but a very disappointing deity. Consider this as we go into Ecclesiastes this morning. Is there a pleasure in your life or mine that has become a God? That you worship to the point that rather than let it go, you would allow it to destroy you. Rather than let it go, you would allow it to destroy your relationships, your walk with God, and even the very thing you're seeking, your own happiness. My guess is that in this room, those little gods that we worship run the gamut. It may be sexuality, it may be food, it may be spending, it may be gambling, it may be a substance like drugs or alcohol that provide a short-lived, 
but powerful pleasure that becomes a source of worship. And what we will see is that apart from God, our pleasures can destroy us and become a God that kills us. So Solomon will say pleasure is a good gift, but it's a terrifying and disappointing deity. And first of all, where I want to start is this. Pleasure is a good gift. Pleasure is a good gift. In other words, we are not ascetics who say we have to abstain from all pleasure. In fact, throughout the course of Ecclesiastes, although Solomon says here in chapter 2 that ultimately pleasure was meaningless and vain, he will also affirm the value of worldly pleasure. Look at a couple of these passages. Ecclesiastes 2. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? Now granted, Solomon is coming from a bit of a cynical perspective like Johnny mentioned earlier. But at the same time, he affirms something we all know. That good gifts come from God. If you have a good meal, it came from the hand of God. If you enjoy your food and your drink, if you enjoy the pleasure of your labor, those are things that came from the hand of God. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, Solomon will affirm the pleasure of intimacy and closeness between husband and wife. Ecclesiastes 9, 9, enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun." I ran across a quote just this week from the poet Langston Hughes, the 20th century poet. He said, folks, I'm telling you, birthing is hard and dying is mean, so get yourself a little loving in between, right? That's not bad advice. From an ecclesiastical perspective, Langston Hughes is saying, look, life is hard. That's what Solomon's saying. Life is hard. You work hard. And God has provided pleasure as a respite from the short nature of our life, from the hard work that we engage in, from the pain and suffering that accompanies life on this earth. And so God has given pleasure as a good gift to us within boundaries, right? And I suspect that's what Langston Hughes missed as you read about his life. Within the boundaries God has set up in life, pleasure is a good and appropriate gift. In the early centuries of the Christian church, there was a strong movement of asceticism, of men and women who said, we are going to shun all of the pleasures of this life, whether it is good food, whether it is laughter, whether it is sexuality in a marital context. They said, we're going to shun all of those pleasures. And so they birthed this monastic movement of men and women who moved into convents or monasteries to say, we're going to get away from the world to avoid sin and avoid the pleasures of this world because they believed pleasure in and of itself, particularly bodily pleasure, was sinful. And so uh, that ascetic movement perhaps reached its peak with men like Simeon Stylites. Uh, Simeon Stylites was a guy who, he moved out into the desert to get away from the pleasures of the world, but people kept following him to talk to him and ask him advice. And so here's what he decided to do. He moved back into a city in Syria and he climbed to the top of a pillar that was one square meter. And he lived there for the next four decades on top of a pillar. Uh, Boys from the village would climb up and give him hard bread and water to eat and carry other things down the pillar for him. He stayed on that pillar for four decades in an attempt 
to avoid the pleasures of life, to avoid people believing that sin was external rather than internal. And the ascetics made a damaging error in their spiritual life, which is to believe that sin springs only from the pleasures of the body rather than from the sickness of our heart. Which is why Paul said in Colossians chapter 2 that we often are tempted to set up these regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, believing that they will save us from sin. And he says they are of little value in protecting against fleshly indulgence. Because legalism is a sickness and a cancer just as deadly as libertinism. And so we are not ascetics who say that all pleasures are bad. In fact, we believe that pleasure is given by God. James 1 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God is a good God. He is not the God of the frowny face. He is not the God who is trying to make your life difficult and withhold any good thing. Instead, the scripture presents God as a gracious and merciful God who says, look at the world I've made and enjoy the world that I have made. If you think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God placed them in the garden and then he surrounded them with good food and he said, eat, eat. There's just one tree that you can't eat from. But all the rest of the garden is filled with fruit that will delight your taste buds and nourish your body. And then he gave them one another. And he said, be fruitful and multiply. And it says the two were naked and not ashamed. And God gave them marital intimacy as an expression of his love for his people. God is an open-handed God. And I think that in this room, there are also men and women who believe on some level that any bodily pleasure is sinful. And so perhaps your relationship with food is one primarily of denial, where you believe that to enjoy any good food is a sin in itself. And so food controls you, but not in the way it controls others. It controls you by way of asceticism. For some, particularly in the area of sexuality, but in a variety of areas, you may have gone to the opposite extreme because of shame or guilt from your past. In other words, it may be that in the past you engaged in inappropriate sexual behavior. And so even in your marriage, perhaps you struggle to enjoy a good gift that God has given. Yet the scripture says, God is a God who gives pleasure and good gifts to his people. If you think about the kingdom of God that is coming when Jesus returns, I think many of us tend to think of it as simply a spirit-filled place. Maybe we float on clouds, we play boring music on harps or something along those lines. But when you look at the scripture, it's actually a, a place where there's a renewed earth and there are many of the pleasures and delights of this earth, particularly the pleasure of food, of good food. Look at Isaiah chapter 25. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. Isaiah mentions the wine twice, right? And choice pieces of meat 
with marrow. And when you get to the book of Revelation, you see Jesus inviting his people to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Think about the last wedding feast that you went to and all of the delectable food that was available. And the the great thing about the kingdom of God is this. We don't have to eat in resurrected bodies. I assume we don't have to eat to stay alive. We eat because it's enjoyable and none of it will ever make us overweight again, right? (laughs) Amen? Okay, God is a God that loves to provide pleasure to his people. He's not a God of asceticism. And yet, although pleasure is a good gift, It's a deeply disappointing deity, and that's what Solomon finds. As as you read Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and you look at Solomon, Solomon, more than anybody in his day, had the capacity to pursue whatever pleasure he wanted. And so he says, I did. I pursued what it was like to engage in drinking and to think about drinking and drunkenness. One pastor I heard said it this way, he got drunk and took notes, right? What does it look like to try to figure out, can I find meaning in drunkenness? Can I find meaning in laughter? Can I find meaning in surrounding myself with gardens and parks and pools and all the beautiful things of the world? Some of you have tried that right? You, you have filled your house with beautiful things and found that even that pleasure doesn't provide lasting significance. He tried to find meaning in sex. And as you read 1 Kings 11, Solomon amassed wives and concubines, hundreds of them to the point that it dragged his heart away from God. And his conclusion here toward the end of his life is it is all vanity. He says, I didn't deny my heart any pleasure because I figured I'd worked hard and I deserved it. It was the reward for all my labor. And yet it was a chasing after the wind. The more he grabbed for happiness, the more it seemed just beyond his reach. And he was striving after the wind. Why is that? Why is pleasure such a disappointing God, even though it's a good gift? few reasons. One, because it's very short-lived. Even the greatest pleasures of life are short-lived. They just don't last. And they often leave us, like we saw at the beginning, in anticipation of the next one and the next one. Uh, Last summer, our family got to go to Disney World, and toward the end of the time at Disney World, our oldest daughter wanted to go ride the rock and roller coaster, uh, which is... uh, supposed to be kind of one of the fastest, craziest roller coasters there. And so I agreed to go on this roller coaster with her. Nobody else in the family was particularly interested in going. And so uh, we were out of the fast pass deal, so we couldn't cut to the front of the line. Uh, We had to stand in the line with everybody else. Uh, Right as we got in the line, and it was about 150 degrees outside in southern Florida in July, right as we got in the line, uh, a high school group of about 200 kids got in the fast pass line in front of us, and they came on the loudspeaker and they said, you're going to have longer than normal waits in this line for this ride, so just be advised. And I looked at my daughter and I said, you still want to do it? She said, yeah, yeah, let's, let's do it. So for two hours, we stood in the line. Do you know how long the roller coaster ride is? I actually looked it up this week. 82 seconds, okay? 82 seconds for two hours in the line. Now, from a strict economic standpoint, that's a terrible investment, of your time, right? 
Now, why was it worthwhile to me? Because I was with my daughter, of course, and she enjoyed it, and it was a great experience for the two of us. But from a strict investment standpoint, what a terrible investment. Two hours for 82 seconds of fun, and yet we do it all the time. We work our tails off so we can come home and enjoy a couple of fleeting hours of our own time to do whatever we want. For some, pleasure turns into something illicit, whether it is through pornography, whether it is through gluttony, whatever it may be, pleasure turns into something illicit that we anticipate and we think about and we even plan for. And then the moment of pleasure is fleeting and we're left with the guilt and the shame. Pleasure is short-lived. And so it's a deeply disappointing deity because it never provides the long-lasting significance and joy that we would hope to find. And Solomon finds that as well. And he chases pleasure after pleasure. In contrast, our God lasts forever. Romans 8 tells us nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. It is constant, enduring, unchanging. It never goes away. It never leaves us disappointed because he is a God who is eternal. Pleasure is a disappointing deity because it's short-lived. Pleasure is a disappointing deity because it can actually destroy us. In 1 Kings 11 that I mentioned earlier, Solomon's experiment with pleasure drew his heart away from God to the point where God said to Solomon, I'm going to tear the kingdom of Israel away from your descendants because Solomon's foreign wives led him to worship false gods to lead the people into worship of false gods. Solomon's pursuit of pleasure destroyed his relationship with God because he turned pleasure into a God. All of us know that engaging in pleasure beyond its proper boundaries can destroy us. We all know that. And yet often the allure is so strong that we just don't care in the moment, particularly if it's a pleasure that is killing us slowly. Many of us know that hard drugs could kill us quickly, and so we stay away from them. But other pleasures of our lives can kill us bit by bit by bit, and yet we keep going back because we turn it into a God. I read just this past week that Burger King has come out with this new burger. It is called... Uh, the extra-long buttery garlic burger. Uh, There is mayonnaise. There is, uh, I guess, garlicky butter on it. There is ketchup. There is a ginormous patty right in the middle of that, onions, two big pieces of cheese, and it's all topped off with white bread. I I looked it up. It's about 800 to 850 calories for this one burger. Everybody knows that if you eat this every day, you will die, right? Right? We all know that. And yet, uh, some of you are looking at this and you're saying, that is gross. Others of you are turning to your spouse saying, we're going this afternoon, right? (laughs) And you don't care, right? Uh, Because often uh, something like food, the pleasure of it is uh, short-lived and fleeting, and we don't feel that it is killing us over time. I'll just confess, I went to the doctor a week ago and he said, you know what, your cholesterol is kind of uh, getting a little high. You may want to cut down on the sweet treats and the carbs. And, and my thought, I'll be honest, was 
how high is it, right? Uh, how, how, how much closer to the boundaries here can I get before it becomes a danger? How many years will I shave off my life? Because if we're talking about cookies, it might be worth a year or two, right? Let's be honest. How many years are tacos worth to me? I, I mean, you, you ask those types of questions, right? And, and yet the reality is that out of their boundaries, pleasure can destroy us. And we all, we all recognize that. And yet the allure is often so strong that in the moment, we just simply don't care. I ran across a study from 2014 as I was reading this week in which they studied the effect of pornography on people's brains. And what they found is that uh, just like any pleasurable activity, looking at pornography uh, causes your brain to release a chemical called dopamine. Dopamine is your brain's reward chemical. It's the chemical that your brain releases essentially to say, uh, you need to do that and do more of that. And of course, we're designed for our brains to work that way. God designed us to desire things like sex and food because they keep us alive and they ensure uh, the continuation of the human race, right? So we are designed to chase that feeling. The problem is that when it uh, exceeds the boundary God created, what happens is your brain releases extra amounts of this chemical so that as a person is looking at these illicit images, there's this huge burst of this hormone. And then the next time, if they look at the same thing, the amount goes down a little and then a little more. So you're always chasing the same high with lessened pleasure. And the same is true. There was another article I read that said overeating can be as addictive as drugs. It's the same thing. Because we have created a culture where we can experience pleasure outside of the boundaries that God intended, where we have distilled pleasure in a laboratory so we can just chase after it, seemingly with no consequences. And yet as we see, of course, The other part of that study I read about pornography was how it is devastating the ability of young men and women, by the way, to engage in real-life relationships with the opposite sex. Because the pleasure of a real person is just not the same as what you see on the screen. It's not the quick burst of dopamine. Real relationships take work. Real relationships are sometimes frustrating. Physical health takes work and is sometimes frustrating. And so we settle for short-term pleasure rather than the long-term payoff of doing things the way God intended. And so our pleasures can destroy us. Often uh, we see that in our culture, much like we saw with Solomon. I I was reading a bit from a book, one of my favorite books. It's called The Gift of pain. It's not because I like pain, but uh, the author is Paul Brand, and he talks about how God designed the pleasure and and pain systems of our body to help us understand things we ought to do, things we ought not to do, right? It's like that old joke you've heard where someone goes to the doctor, and the doctor says, what's wrong? And he says, well, it really hurts when I do this, right? And the doctor says, stop doing that, right? You're not supposed to do that. That's how pain functions in our body. That's how pleasure functions. And Paul Brand says this, scientists have identified a pleasure center in the brain which can be stimulated directly. Some of you know this. Researchers have implanted electrodes in the hypothalamuses of rats 
who are then placed in a cage in front of three levers. Pressing the first releases a piece of food. The second lever yields a drink, and the third activates electrodes that give the rats an immediate but transient feeling of pleasure. In these experiments, the rats choose to press only the pleasure lever day after day until they starve to death. Why respond to hunger and thirst when they can experience the pleasures associated with eating and drinking in a more convenient way? That's the same dynamic we see in our culture. Solomon says it this way. All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. You're never going to hit a place when you chase after pleasure where you say it's enough. Because I think what Solomon ultimately would say to us if he were here is you chase after God and connect all the pleasures of your life to him. Otherwise, it can destroy us. Pleasure destroys us and pleasure can blind us. Pleasure can blind us to the reality of our lives, to the things that God has called us to do. It can blind us even to the love of God himself because we are tempted then to look at the pleasures God has provided legitimately and say, they're not enough. Think about Adam and Eve again in the garden. God had given them virtually infinite sources of pleasure from him. And there was one pleasure that he said, don't eat that. And they looked at all God had given and they said, it's not enough. Because our hearts have this desire to be our own God. And so what we do is we bow down to small gods that we believe will satisfy us more than him that we believe will please us more than him. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, For a man will not often consider the years of his life, that is, how long he has to live, because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Right? At its best, pleasure reduces the pain of living in a fallen world. At its worst, we, we just simply forget about anything of significance. This past week, as I was working on this sermon, this was a hard sermon to put together. I had a hard time thinking about the passage, finding the resources that I needed to put it together, doing the research. It was hard work that required sustained thought and concentration. And and I'll admit that when a sermon comes together well, there is a pleasure in that. When I give the message well and I go, okay, I was able to communicate God's word, there's a pleasure, like many of you know, in hard work and seeing the payoff of that hard work. But in the midst of the hard work, there was a temptation there. That temptation for me was named Facebook, right? So much easier to go for the quick hit of the pleasure of talking to people on Facebook or getting likes and feeling like I've done something. Or I see if there's any emails I need to answer, right? I listen for that little tone, boom! And I do something that gives me the illusion of productivity because we look for short-term rewards. And in the process often, when we seek short-term pleasure, it blinds us to the lasting joy of pursuing God. That happens in the area of sexuality when men and women turn to illicit pleasure. It happens in the area of food. It happens in the area of spending when we spend all of our resources to surround ourselves with things that will not last. It happens in the area of alcohol or substance abuse where we chase short-term pleasure and it blinds us to who God is 
how much He loves us, how much He's given, and all He's called us to do. I said at the beginning that all of us have the opportunity in our culture to pursue the experiment of Solomon. To pursue the experiment of Solomon. Let me ask you this question. Have you and I turned pleasure into a God? Because we can. Because we can all be Solomon. At another place in his book, Paul Brand says this, a double irony is at work. Just as a society that conquers pain and suffering seems less able to cope with what suffering remains, so a society that pursues pleasure runs the risk of raising expectations ever higher so that contentment lies tantalizingly out of reach. See that? That's what Solomon would call a striving after the wind. The more I chase it, the more it's just out of my reach. And the scripture would say, pursue God first. It takes a longer time to understand and experience the joy of knowing God. It takes discipline and quiet and resistance to temptation through the power of the Spirit. And yet the joy that comes from knowing God is infinitely greater than the short-term reward of bodily pleasure. So what do we do? First of all, seek pleasure in God first. Uh, In just a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. And so actually, if the men will get up and begin to get ready, here's here's a point that we're going to see as we celebrate communion. We will look at what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And it's an opportunity to simply reflect on the fact that we we serve a good God, a God of grace and a God of mercy and a God of kindness who has given us not only uh, short-term pleasure but long-term life where He will invite us into an eternal feast with Him. And so the Scripture would say, like Jesus says in John chapter 15, I came that my joy may be in you and your joy will be full. But you know how that happens? As we abide in Him. Maybe that this morning you don't yet have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and so you really, you're just chasing happiness wherever you can find it. And what the Word of God would tell you this morning is this, that joy, lasting joy and pleasure is first and foremost found in knowing God, in believing that his son Jesus died to take away all of your sin, to forgive you for all the times, and forgive me for all the times that we've chased after something besides him. He rose again. He defeated death and sin. And he offers abundant, everlasting life, greater than the pleasures of this world. So we seek pleasure in God first. Secondly, enjoy earthly pleasures, but within proper boundaries. That we recognize pleasure at its best directs us to him and who he is. And and I'm aware that there are those in here this morning that you feel now that pleasure really has become a God because it, it rules you. You say, I would love to stop what I'm doing, but I can't. So I'd say this, when you need help, seek help. Not if. Every single person in this room, I believe, will hit a point in life where you say, there is a habit, there is a pattern in my life I cannot overcome apart from the power of God's Spirit and then the encouragement of God's people. We have a program called Celebrate Recovery. You can find information on our website. It is designed to help 
with habits and hang-ups and addictions. Uh, We have counselors we can recommend. There are pastors you can talk to. Seek help when you need it in the body of Christ and pray that the power of God's Spirit will remind us that the pleasures of God are greater than the fleeting pleasures of this world so that we can pursue pleasure in God alone. As we celebrate communion this morning, let's thank God for his good gift of eternal life and all of the good gifts that he has given. The men will come on forward. First Corinthians 11, verse 23. Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray and then we'll close in worship. Father, we're grateful as we remember what your son Jesus did for us, that he gave his life so we could have ours. We're grateful that you are a God of good, good gifts, uh, that you love to give your people good gifts. And I pray that we would be satisfied with the gifts you give us, with knowing you, with the pleasures of life you give us, Father. And we would not seek to make pleasure and happiness our God, but instead you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this time. Be with us as we go out, as we seek to pursue you. We pray this in Jesus' name.